I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today on episode 94, I'm going to talk to Noah Mata. Noah and his wife, Patty, lead the campus ministry at the University of Maryland. In this episode, Noah shares about visiting his dad in prison while Noah was going to college at Temple University. He shares about discovering that he has a form of diabetes. He talks about three keys to making campus ministry work in 2021, what he does to create a one another discipling culture in his campus ministry, how he's managed to baptize nine souls during the pandemic, working with other churches and college ministries on Freedom Fridays, and finally talks about his new podcast, The Messy Middle. All this and more on episode 94 of the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. It's been an amazing time as we prepare for our Flagstaff mission planting this summer. Pam and I are going to be going up with leaders of the planting, Brian and Abby Mackey, and we're going to go up June 1st and spend a month there to help them to get get the team off the ground. The summer is going to be spent building unity, building team, doing a lot of fun activities. We're going to go camping in the Grand Canyon, doing all sorts of fun things. Of course, sharing our faith, praying, just doing a lot of stuff to create an amazing mission team. And that's going to build up to our big kickoff Sunday, September 12th, which is about three weeks into the semester at Northern Arizona, Northern Arizona University. And on that Sunday, we're going to have all the churches in Arizona gather and have a massive service. And we're inviting anybody who has relatives or family in Flagstaff to come for that big service. We're hoping to have I don't know, 500, 600 people there would be great. And we did that in Tucson, and our initial service was 483, and it's just so encouraging to have a big kickoff. I read somewhere, if you want to have a big church, you got to start big, and it really has certainly helped. But if you are interested in going on the Flagstaff mission team, please contact me and just email me, message me. You can reach me at rob at robskinner.com or rob at tucsonchurchofchrist.org. I'd love to hear from you. We're looking for people that can come for the summer, for a month, couple weeks. That's okay. Especially people that can come for a year or a couple years or just want to move to Flagstaff. We're looking for families. We're looking for retirees. We want to do something amazing there. That church has been there for about 30 years, and it went up to like 37 people. Now it's about 12 faithful disciples, and yet it's just plateaued. It hasn't had full-time leadership in 14 years. So they've been hanging on, and this is an opportunity for us to build an amazing, thriving, discipling ministry in a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. So if you're interested, please get a hold of me. I'll leave my information and contact number on the notes, but that would be awesome. Today on my program, I've got Noah Mata who's coming on, and 
Noah and Patty Mata currently live in College Park, Maryland, right outside of D.C. area. They serve as ministers in the Capital Rivers Church. Patty's from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. She became a Christian in the teen ministry, and she holds a master's in social work. Noah became a Christian in 2007. You're going to find out a very interesting manner of his conversion in Hartford, Connecticut. He studied at Temple University. He's been serving in the full-time ministry for almost seven years in Philadelphia and in the Capital Rivers Church. Both Patty and Noah are passionate about connecting the gospel message both to the privileged as well as the unprivileged or disprivileged. Noah hosts a podcast called The Messy Middle, and you're going to find all about that. Patty began a page called Jesus 8-2, and so she's working on that, how to have a godly mindset to body image and diet practices. They've been married for three years and have a dog named Landon. Noah is uh, a brother who's I've known about for a little over a year because so many of the people on the podcast refer to him, and especially those who are younger than 30. And he's got a great reputation in campus ministry. Noah, welcome to the program. Great to be here with you, Rob. It's uh, surreal even just thinking about, I was talking to you offline before this, but uh, when I do workouts, I don't listen to music. I definitely listen to podcasts and your yours has definitely been on the list. So very grateful to be here with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Can you tell us how you became a Christian? Yeah, I, um, so it starts with my family, my, my, my mom, my mom and dad, they, uh, they moved here in 91 and then I was born almost immediately afterwards. They were from the Philippines. Um, a few years later, my, uh, parents were met at a supermarket in New York, uh, at a path mark and they were just walking around and, a woman by the name of Marie Wood at the time, I think she's since changed her last name as she got married. Uh, she reached out to them, basically asked, Hey, have you guys ever read the Bible for yourself? And my parents coming from a Filipino background, culturally Catholic, you know, going to mass was in their DNA, but reading the Bible wasn't. So uh, they looked at each other and were like, you know what? No. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, they became Christians that year in 95. And then, uh, we, you know, I, I knew of the kingdom from a very young age and a lot of my best friends were in the church. We moved up to Hartford, Connecticut. So, uh, that's where I basically started to have my own personal relationship with God. Uh, but then 2003 happened where, which was a bit of a rift in our family of churches and, uh, my parents, um, were definitely uh, affected by that. So they actually left the church uh, in 2003. And then a couple of years later, I came back myself uh, simply because I had a lot of best friends in the church. I didn't really, you know, the God thing was just like, ah, I don't know. I mean, sure, that's an added bo bonus. But I think for me, it was the, the friends that stayed connected with me, uh, connected and chatted with me uh, through MySpace. So uh, I came back to camp that summer up in new England. And, uh, basically, uh, a lot of things were exposed my motives. Um, I studied the Bible for maybe two years as a teenager. And then, uh, my teen minister at the time, Julius Ferrer, uh, I'll never forget just us studying the Bible. And, uh, he saw a picture of me on Facebook with a, uh, 
with a bong in my mouth and uh, essentially was like, okay, um, are you studying the Bible for, you know, good intents and purposes or uh, are you trying to hide? And of course I was hiding. Um, so there is this sense of, okay, all right, let's, let's get real for a second, but I'll never forget the love, uh, but also the, 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 the combination of conviction that that conversation brought up that I was so afraid to just be one person. I was a good chameleon. Uh, I masqueraded myself wherever I went. Um, but that was one of the things that I, I think actually God kept trying to reveal through his people was that, you know, who people really are that you get to actually experience in the kingdom of God. Um, what you see is what you get. So November 25th, 2007, uh, after a slew of mistakes, um, I was president of my class. I, I, I'll share this other story later on, but um, basically threw poop at a window and got kicked off my presidency. And uh, about a month later, it was a come to Jesus moment. So, uh, oh my yeah. gosh. Oh, anyways, yes. So, bong and poop uh, were just about as messy as it got. <laughs> so, it, it wasn't too hard to find some sin there during that sin study. Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. You were, know, so there, much so that we had to have multiple sin studies. Um, there were there were a few things that, that could be categorized as sin is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, never forget it. Oh November 25th, 2007. That's when uh, Jesus saved me from my mess. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Now, that's a long way from now being a professional minister. I mean, right. <laughs> how, how did that work out? How did you get to where you're at now? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, when I became a Christian, there was a lot of things that actually happened uh, as a result. Um, so I graduated high school very shortly afterwards. Um, and I wanted to go to school in Boston. Uh, a lot of my great friends were in Boston. Boston was a great campus ministry, um, I had actually put in a deposit for an apartment and had intended to go to Suffolk University, but um, a few things happened to my family that were really challenging. Um, my uh, family really actually as a result, praise God, uh, wanted to get restored as a result of my baptism. Um, but basically, long story short, my, my father had gone through uh, some uh, legal challenges with his work. And, uh, essentially it caused, uh, our family to lose our money, lose our house, lose our home. Um, and he was actually sentenced to, um, time in, 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 in prison for a few years. So, um, where God's kind of hand and sovereign hand works through all of it was that, uh, I ended up having an opportunity to go to Philadelphia, um, to basically just, be part of the campus ministry there. And I ended up transferring to Temple University. I was really inspired by Philadelphia because of the um, intersection of, uh, at the time, Hope Worldwide was in Philadelphia. So a lot of great work was done around the city. Um, and it was the first time I saw just both of those worlds together. Um, and where you're able to do Saturday Academy programs weekly, and that's embedded in the campus ministry. Um, and Jameson Malcolm and Lauren Malcolm were leading the, the efforts there for a while. 
And uh, I just love their example of building campus ministry, but not compartmentalizing these worlds. And uh, so I came, I was just inspired. I'm like, you know what? I don't have any money in my pocket, but let's just try to make it work. Worked at Chili's for about six months to a year with uh, some of my roommates. My my roommates and I, we, we shared one bedroom between the three of us. So that was, that was uh, oh definitely goodness. no way to live, but all the ways to live as a freshman <laughs> campus student. Um, but then at the same time, my father actually was, um, sentenced, uh, in a prison that was right outside Philadelphia and which was really ironic because none of the, uh, he, he didn't work near Philadelphia. We weren't near Philadelphia at all. Um, but I actually think it was God's intention for him to be there so that my father and I can reconcile, um, and the one word that I keep thinking about that has brought me to professional mis- ministry is reconciliation. Uh, even just thinking about that passage in First Corinthians, where it's we joined this ministry of reconciliation, and for me, I wanted nothing uh, to do with it. You know, in my nature, that you know, with everything that happened in my family, I blamed my father a lot. Um, he was very much someone that I had a lot of hatred for. Um, but I feel like God re- uh, revealed that opportunity, both in my campus ministry experience, but also uh, he wasn't letting me let that go. It was like, all right, if you're going to be here in Philadelphia building my kingdom, well, you're going to have to f- you're going to have to deal with some of the demons in your closet that you're not willing to deal with. So, um, yeah. So long story short, I mean, I, I studied political science. I wanted to go to law school, uh, but God absolutely had other plans. So, um, yeah, I when I graduated, I uh, I had a job at, with the Canadian consulate um, and, you know, thought I was going to do that, thought, you know, that would probably be the route that I go and to kind of provide, um, you know, legislative change. Uh, but I realized uh, as I thought about my own personal life and the call higher, um, I'll never forget a conversation I had with uh, Walter Evans, who basically just said about ministry is that ministers actually join a, uh, a personal accountability to a high road, um, that you've got to make sure that you are on the path of the straight and narrow in order to actually be a minister of God's gospel. Cause if you're not that, if you, uh, if you waylay or if you let your, your, your personal conduct slip, it's one of those things where you are uh, pretending to be a minister as, as opposed to actually being a minister of the gospel. So that call hire was absolutely a, uh, a motivator for me to join the ministry. Um, and I don't regret it at all. Um, I joined, uh, yeah, staff uh, in Philadelphia first, uh, served as a youth and family minister, and I'm so grateful for that. Usually, I, I feel like what usually happens is the opposite. You, you do campus ministry first, and then you go into right. youth and family. But I'm actually grateful for the opposite, because I, I do think both personally for my own reconciliation purposes and needs, uh, but also even the way that I even think through building campus ministry has been uh, forever changed because of my time in youth and family. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I look forward to talking to you more about that. Let's go back to having your dad in prison. What that must have been so challenging, to say the very least. What was it like having uh, a dad in prison? 
Can you, can you describe that? Yeah. Um, so I think it's threefold. Um, I think one, there's certainly some shame for me, uh, especially cause my father, I love my father so much. Um, and I looked up to him so much and, you know, as a disciple in God's church that he was, I think oftentimes reputation is something that comes up where it's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, wait, what your dad's in jail, you know? And, uh, it was definitely something I didn't like to talk about mm-hmm. at all. Um, part of it was out of protection for his reputation. Right. Um, but also to protection for my own. And I think that was one thing that I, I had to realize was that, um, I actually had some, uh, prejudices in my own heart about people that were incarcerated. Um, I think uh, probably the, the second fold is that it exposed my my high horse mentality, you know, um, that I could never end up in jail. I could never see myself being in a situation like that. Um, so it exposed definitely a lot of my own, um, yeah, just my own self-righteousness. Um, and yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, I worked that much harder in school because of that, because I felt like, man, I, w- I want to make sure that I'm as far removed from that, um, that reputation and that, that identity as possible. Um, but I think that lastly was that it, it actually helped me, it helped me be a lot more sympathetic, um, and empathetic for other people's pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I found a lot of strength in my own strength in the sense of, you know, like if I work at it, if I do my part, if I do my thing, then, you know, people that are caught up in really challenging situations, it's their fault, Um, which is actually further, could not be furthest from the truth, you know? So I think for me that, that those were some areas that I feel like it, just the realities that it brought up uh, about having my dad in jail. And actually around that same time, uh, Kit Cummings came out with uh, a lot of this, these teachings on prison ministry and kind of a lot of the great work that he was doing in Atlanta. And uh, I, I went down this rabbit hole of just kind of seeing what he was doing. And I actually think what happened was that it exposed um even my own effectiveness and my lack of effectiveness in being able to reach um, environments that were not like my own. So I grew up in new England. I I grew up in a pretty, uh, pretty safe environment that was not like the Philippines. So I knew what Philippine, um, disenfranchised, uh, downtrodden environments looked like, but I didn't know what that looked like in American soil. Mm. Um, so just to be able to see that, simultaneously with Philadelphia, you know, (laughs) being in Philadelphia, having my father being, uh, you know, behind bars, it was, uh, it was definitely challenging and exposing all at the same time, for sure. How how did you get it patched up between you and your dad? Yeah. So, um, one of the things that were brought up in even just my own, um, times of God, but also with, uh, those discipling me was that, you know, you need to go see your dad at least once a semester. Uh, and he was there for three years. So it actually, he was there for almost a, the entire duration of my time in college. Um, so I didn't want to, 
uh, at all. Uh, but I knew that that was what God was trying to tell me. So, so basically I, I, I went and go, went and go, uh, just spent time with him. And, um, so yeah, I, I, I saw him every semester until he got out. Um, and it was funny, man. Like he, I saw a different side of my dad that I didn't see before. So I, there basically how it works is you come in, uh, you have to go through a, a bit of a screening process and, um, it takes the, the time where you are intaked and then you actually get to where some of the inmates are. It takes about 10, 15 minutes, uh, depending on how busy it is. Um, and essentially you have to wait at a table while, uh, the inmate actually comes in and they're ushered in by the guards. So I, I'd see my dad at a distance uh, for about two minutes before he actually could make his way to the, the table. And every time I, I could have sworn my dad was more jacked than the last time around, just because I'm, he, and every time I, I give him a hug and his hair's longer, his arms are bigger um, and I'm hugging him. And he's, I was like, dude, what in the world are you doing in here? He's like, what else is there to do, but to read my Bible, play basketball and work out, you know, it's like, oh, that's awesome. Oh my so God. even that, I feel like God was really trying to build a different relationship with my father and I, um, and all we had to do was talk, you know? So I think for me, the first few meetings were really tough. It was a lot of me being silent and a lot of my father just saying, sorry. And, uh, I think it took a lot of those moments to break me. And, um, I think the human side of it is really what broke me is, uh, being able to see that my dad was not in street clothes, but he was, you know, he was in, he was in tan clothing that was given to him by these prison walls. Um, and I'll never forget just praying every time I drove back um, and just weeping, just weeping that I hated my dad. I was so upset with the situation. Why did this have to happen to us? And he's the reason why it's so hard to afford, you know, living my life right now. And he's the reason why it didn't end up in Boston. Um but the reality was that now it's God needed this to happen or wanted this to happen so that I could see my need for him. Mm. Um, that it was one thing to become a Christian and leave my life. Uh, but it was another thing to stay one and to uh, enter in this ministry of reconciliation. So, wow. So your dad got out. Is he still a, a part of the church? Dad and mom, how, how did things end up? Yeah. So my dad got out, he, he got connected with the church in uh, the Philippines, which was awesome. So grateful for those guys. And, you know, my, my mom went through a, a slew of her own challenges as well, but um, you know, my father's still, he's, he's, uh, he's working on his faith, you know, we're praying for my dad and um, but my mom, I, I'm so proud of my mom. Uh, she worked through a lot of just kind of, hurt and, and healing that was needed since that time. And she uh, actually helped serve and volunteer one of the summers that I was coordinating at Camp Hope for Kids. And uh, through that experience, uh, it kind of grafted her back into the church. And, you know, she's, uh, yeah, she, she's a firm believer, firm uh, follower of the, of the Lord again, and got to restore her relationship with God as a result. And, um, 
so that was awesome. That I think was uh, one of the special just moments, even for us, my mom and I, to almost even rewrite our history too. Cause I think those were some really challenging years, not just with my dad being in there, but almost even for a while, I, I felt like I had to kind of play the role of my father in some ways as an emotional support mm. for my mom, um, all while being in college and trying to be a kid and grow up and have fun. So I made my own slew of mistakes and, but I think, um, even camp that, that, I mean, if you've ever been at camp, uh, those listening would, would probably even know what that feeling is like any kind of camp period, but camp for kids, the, even just being able to work together as a staff with multi-generations, um, there's almost nothing like it where it's, uh, I envision that's what God wanted the church to feel like was that, you know, as my mom's a nurse in the, in the, uh, in the lodge and the uh, nursing station. And I'm over here uh, in the office trying to coordinate some of the calendars, you know, just so it was the, it was surreal. It was the first time my mom and I got to actually, you know, till the soil together for God's kingdom. So right. Right. that was awesome. Yeah. My kids all went there at one point, another, maybe some multiple times. And, would come back and just tell stories of, you know, great things and also challenging things, how hot it was, how humid it was. We're from the West. Yeah. Coast. There's no AC. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got some, I've got some good memories with your son, James, man. He, uh, he played the Joker one time and, uh, we didn't know that he'd be such a good joker, but I was like, man, move over Heath Ledger. We've got a, we got James Skinner over here. Yeah, amen. Oh, that's great. So how did you meet Patty? Where, where's Patty come into the picture? Yeah. My, my pride and joy, my, uh, my crown jewel. Yeah. My, uh, so it's funny. Uh, I dated a few times before, uh, Patty and I, uh, became a thing in the kingdom and, I'm grateful for those times because I think it it was because of those relationships that it helped me see Patty. Um, so Patty, Patty and I are about, I think we're four years apart. Um, so we actually met at New England teen camp. Uh, I was a counselor and she was a teen. Uh, we were dating other people at the time. So, you know, but, you know, th there was no reason for us to be interested in each other. But I always remember her first impression on me was that she was just really funny. And I didn't know that that was something that I actually like really appreciated in the opposite sex. But I was like, wow, Patty's like really funny. Um, <laughs> so that came into play. We ended up seeing each other again at a international campus ministry conference in New York uh, a number of years later. And I was in a hotel lobby and I saw her from a distance and she actually, I, I didn't know if she saw me and I was like, oh, that's Patty, but I didn't come up to her. And then I turned the other direction. And then all of a sudden I hear my name, no Amada. And I was like, so I looked over and uh, it was Patty. And it was funny because as we talked and had banter back and forth, I don't even remember what we talked about, but the same feeling came upon me. It was like, she is really funny. Like she is <laughs> like we can talk, like we can banter and she can, you know, she, she can, she can vibe, you know, as they say, um, again, never asked her on a date during that weekend, you know, missed my window of opportunity. Uh, but then a number of months later, uh, I was on a bus back from Boston. I was at a wedding and, you know, coming back from a wedding on a six hour, you know, 
bus ride, you're, you're thinking, oh, who, who could it be for me? Right, right. So, you know, I'm scrolling through the, uh, the black hole of social media, and all of a sudden I see her post about uh, she was raising money to actually go on a youth court to the Philippines. And uh, she was actually deciding to quit her job at Michael Kors because of a number of things, consumerism, but wanting to really um, kind of unload her lifestyle um, so that she can really get her heart prepared to be able to go to a situation like that. And it just inspired me. I was like, wow, I really appreciate the way that you talked about it. So I felt like the Holy Spirit moved my fingers to my phone and opened up her <laughs> Facebook Messenger. And then I, 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 I texted it. It was like a blur. It was like I was in a trance. But uh, it basically, I was like, hey, Patty, really inspired. But why you just, what you just wrote about with you going to the Philippines, really uh, want to hear about how, what you're thinking through and uh, the reason why you want to go. Do you want to talk on Wednesday? Wow. And I hit send. <laughs> and then my heart sank because I was like, that had to have been the most forward, uh, you know, Facebook message you've ever sent. And uh, to my joy and surprise, she uh, commented about like five minutes later, actually shockingly uh, soon. And she was like, actually, I would love to talk. Let's let's talk on Wednesday. So basically, long story short, we ended up not talking about the Philippines at all and uh, had a you know two hour long Skype conversation that uh, turned into just a, an incredible friendship. And funny enough, a um, couple of weeks later, I got a call to see if I'd be interested in actually joining to go on this, uh, this youth corps into the Philippines at that same time. And it was around the Christmas season. So yeah, that trip changed our lives uh, in more ways than one. Um, yeah, I, you know, told her I liked her there. And then, you know, we had just a great cloud of witnesses around us and started dating uh, shortly after that. Um, so it was, it was special for me because I, I, I got to see her with my people, you know, <laughs> Uh, being in the Philippines, being someone who was not Filipino in the slightest, you know, she's Canadian, she's from Halifax, Nova Scotia, but she's fought to learn the language. She fought to be with people. She, man, like, yeah, it's, it, uh, it like breaks me to tears right now. Cause I'm like, that's, that's why I wanted her to be my, my partner in crime. Um, or the opposite of crime, uh, <laughs> holiness. But uh, yeah, so that's how we we got connected. She we we dated long distance for a couple of years, and then she moved to Philadelphia because I was on staff in Philadelphia at the time um, to get her master's in social work. So um, yeah, and that was a crazy year in and of itself. We uh, yeah dated for a year in person, um, and then uh, yeah got married about a year after she moved over here. So, wow. yeah. For those who are waiting to get married, find the right person, can you offer them any advice, any words of hope? Yeah. I think uh, it's funny because I think sometimes we try to find our story in other people's stories. Uh, but the reality is God has written a unique story for every single one of us. Um, and I think, we can't take the beauty away from that. Uh, sometimes it's stories that take years and years and years to develop. 
sometimes it's just a different kind of story, you know? And I think sometimes a love story can only be, um, it's almost exclusive for romantic relationships. Whereas actually, no, we've been living a love story for the entire entirety of our lives. Um, but I think for me, again, I mentioned earlier, I, I dated about three times before, uh, before Patty. And even in that were interests. And, you know, I, I was just a guy, I, I think Tony Fernandez said this on your podcast, a few uh, podcasts ago, just about being a hunter, you know? Um, and I think for me, that was me. I, I just, I shot my shot everywhere I went. I'm like Steph Curry, you know, I just, I want to shoot the ball where, wherever. So I had to, I had to be talked down and say, Hey, you just got to even it out a little bit. But I think, um, but the reason why I think for me, that was so good and God needed that for me was that had I not shot my shot, I wouldn't have learned some really important lessons for myself. So um, none of those relationships were mistakes before Patty. They weren't there. They were actually all, uh, stories that I needed to be able to find that Patty was the one for me. And not only that, but I was the one for her. Mm. Um, so I think oftentimes when we get so, um, when there's a finality in everything that we do, uh, and sometimes you feel like if you got broken up with, it's the end of the world. It's okay that it feels that way, but if you stay faithful to God and you allow yourself the opportunity to be able to find new stories, I actually think you'll be pleasantly surprised. You know, um, a friend of mine said, uh, if on your wedding day, you have any regrets about marrying the person you're going to marry, then yes, I will literally like call off the wedding right now, you know? Um, and that's, it's really important because I, I always have to not only have my future spouse in mind, right, but but God in mind and all that. So um, Acts 17 is, I think, one of my favorite uh, love story passages, you know, God did all this so that men could seek him and perhaps find him and reach out for him. It was almost like God was on one knee saying, mm -hmm. will you, Wow. not you need to. Right. He's, no, he actually gave us the agency of choice. He said, perhaps you'll say yes. You know, and I, I think that's what's so cool is that all of these moments, God, God gives us autonomy to be able to make these decisions like it. No one forced my hand to marry Patty um, and no one forced her hand to marry me. Right. So we, we chose each other. Right. So I, I think that's one of the coolest things about God and his trust in humans, you know, that he trusts us to be able to make choices. Um, and some of those choices hurt us, but some of them actually create, I don't know, uh, just uh, a, a huge garden of success and, and, and just love story. So thank you. Well, th thanks for sharing about your dad. And um, that, that's, I'm sure that's a real sensitive topic. Can you share about what's your proudest moment as a disciple? When you look back and, and how old are you right now? 29? Yeah, 29. Okay. When you look back on, on your life as a disciple, what can you share about a time when you go, man, that, that just felt awesome. I just felt like that was a, a great moment in my life. Yeah. Oh, this is hard. It's uh, especially thinking about like my proudest moment. It's like, a, I think we've had to write, rewrite the script of that too. Or it's like pride or I'm proud, you know, it's, a, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know, can I share two things? Is you got that... it. No problem. Okay, great. All right. So one is, uh, 
I am really proud of my days in campus ministry because of the camaraderie and teamwork that I learned, uh, not just in my own campus ministry, but I actually think, I mean, goodness, I think about my inter interconnected relationships all throughout the kingdom, that we were really all of our teammates, you know, uh, that a brother of mine that was in San Diego was my teammate. Uh, a brother of mine down in Virginia Tech was my teammate. We had a text thread with all of us. I remember one week uh, we, uh, <laughs> okay, hear, hear, the, hear the righteousness in this and then hear the, the sin in it. But uh, we had a text thread uh, of just all of us were, were like, we want to we want to save sorority women. And uh, it was like, you need to just reach out to, to sisters in sorority all week. And uh, that all of us got to share just our victories in that. And I remember doing that. Um, and there was just this spirit of, man, we are idiots, but we're like idiots together. <laughs> um, and I, I think about so many of those guys right now uh, that are off doing incredible things, whether they're in the ministry or not. And I'm just really grateful for that because I, I do feel like I have an interconnected relationship pool that if there were ever, if I were ever in a time of crisis, that man, I, I've got guys all over the world that will be at my beckoning call. You know, uh, if ever, if ever something happened to me, I know that my family is going to be totally fine. And uh, that's why I'm so grateful for, you know, just thinking about that as being one of my proudest moments. But, and then secondly, I, I'd say outside of marrying, marrying Patty, um, I think one of my proudest moments as well is uh, learning just the art of being vulnerable. Um, and, you know, a few years ago, I uh, was diagnosed with diabetes. Um, and that was a uh, something that kind of runs my family. Uh, but my... <laughs> My knee-jerk reaction was to hide it, not tell anybody, and uh, just kind of work as hard as I could to just deal with it. But the pain was too much to bear that I couldn't hide it. It was ridiculous for me to do that. Um, and I felt like I had a decision to make uh, to include people in my struggle or to exclude them. And I think because of that, it actually opened wide doors uh, evangelistically it, it it opened wide the doors even just in my compassion again this i feel like this is a running uh a running need for me is to have to learn how to open wide my heart mm. um and uh through that it just it it created some really cool memories and uh really cool uh moments of just even going gym culture was something i didn't really care i, I love playing sports played basketball and soccer but never never really you know liked pumping iron, but now it's like in my DNA, you know, where it's, uh, I, I pump iron, not just because of my health and, uh, I don't even do it because of the aesthetics, but I do it because it's actually one of the easiest places to places to reach out to people. You know, right. the amount of conversations that I've had with men in the gym that have talked about their insecurity about their body image in the gym, it created this kind of visceral effect of vulnerability, Whereas it's almost like that's where my mind is every time I go to the gym now, where I'm like, I can't wait to talk about someone's heart today, you know? Um, so, yeah, um, I think those are some of my proudest moments. Again, it, it's a, uh, 
I think those are just opportunities that God has just kind of exploded right. in our direction. But I think uh, those are some things I'm just very, very grateful for. So with your diabetes, how are you treating it? Yeah, so I have a rare form of it called Modi. Um, it's called a maturing onset of diabetes in the young and uh, it's newly researched. Uh, I was uh, I did some genetic testing a few years ago. And uh, because of my endocrinologist, he suspected it because he was like, okay, um, you don't have type one. So type one is typically the one that you have to, you know, shoot insulin uh, so that your, your pancreas gets the insulin that it needs. My pancreas is less sensitive to insulin, which is most seen in type two diabetics, but I didn't necessarily fit the bill for a type two diabetic. Um, so basically Modi acts as type two. So you would basically treat it in the same way because that's what the research where the research is now um but i you know i tried to t stay away from medication as much as possible and really just pursue diet and exercise um so for sure my diet is something i don't wish upon anybody um but it's something that's worked for me and i've i haven't felt any i, I feel the healthiest i ever have in my life actually even before being diagnosed with diabetes so I think diabetes has been the thorn in my side that has kept me uh, adherent to the boundaries that I need to have, uh, but also has helped me identify some of these limits that I, I was afraid to push that I could, you know, so. What's it look like on an average day, what you're eating? Yeah, uh, so my breakfast is pretty plain and simple every day. I mean, I, I have a smoothie, uh, put, you know, half an avocado in there with, kale and strawberries, protein powder, uh, put some flaxseed in there to make it fun. Um, unsweetened almond milk, uh, cinnamon, <laughs> some, uh, some, uh, erythritol, you know, put it all in a little blender and man, that thing is pristine. It's better than anything I'll get from, uh, from uh, smoothie King. But, uh, yeah. So, I, uh, I have what I'll call it is like a modified ketogenic diet, not full ketogenic. Cause actually for me personally, I, I don't think, uh, a, a strictly ketogenic diet is actually good for diabetics in the long haul. Um, so I still need vegetables. I need, need that sustenance. Uh, but I usually, I usually go for lean meats. Um, and you know, on the occasion I'll, I'll eat, I'll eat red meat. Um, just cause we only got one life. So that's, that's right. You must be absolutely ripped. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> What's your current body fat? <laughs> it's, uh, it's low enough where you'll be like, okay. Um, so the guy, guys who know me, they're, they're like, okay, that's unfair. Um, but you know, Bruce Lee is definitely a, uh, a, uh, a hero of mine. Oh so my gosh. I'll, I'll say, I'll say that much. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine on a, a kind of a modified keto diet, you must be absolutely shredded. That's awesome. <laughs> you may have already talked about it, but can you tell me about a time when you felt the most tested by God? Yeah. Wow. Um, goodness. Yeah. I think the diabetes thing for sure. Um, I'll say this. I think when you deal with pain in the ministry and tragedy in the ministry, that there's really nothing like that. Um, 
because I actually do think it, it it reveals the greatest strengths of the ministry, but also reveals the greatest weaknesses. And, um, you know, when I was serving in youth and family uh, in Philly, um, we had a one of my students actually, um, yeah, through a lot of different mental health challenges, uh, actually ended their own life. And, um, you know, I, I think about that family very much and even this individual. And I, I, I know God has a special place for those who, um, you know, are going through lots of mental health challenges. And, but when that happens in your own ministry, uh, when that happens to a kid who was a frequent, you know, guest in your Bible talk, that there is nothing like that. Um, especially how do you make sense of that right. with high school students? Right. How do you make sense of that with their parents? Um, and that's why I'm really grateful. We call youth and family, youth and family. You, you, you can't do high school ministry without engaging with the families. And I'm grateful for those families. I felt like they were really gracious with me. Um, they, they supported me. Uh, they backed me up. I'm grateful. Even I, I worked alongside Audie and Bethany Monday in Philadelphia and, uh, they do a great work. They've been there for a good bit, just doing youth and family there. And um, I felt like the partnership and the teamwork was was so there. Um, but man, just I I feel like that was a testing time for me to remember why I'm doing what I'm doing, that we're dealing with life and death, you know, and uh, I think oftentimes when we think about younger ministries, death is very much not part of the common vernacular, you know, right. um, it's like, you got your old life ahead of you. Um, but the reality is you don't know. <laughs> and, uh, that became real to me. And actually around that same time, there's around the same time I was di uh, diagnosed with diabetes. So death was very much becoming more and more real to me. Um, that, yeah, that I actually have to help these students, have a healthy understanding, a healthy fear of losing their lives because the only eternity that we get is eternity with God. Um, so I'll never forget that time. Um, it was a really challenging time. I remember getting a call uh, from one of my teens. That's how I found out just weeping. Um, and I was in the middle of a Bible study and I didn't know what to do. I, I was like, Oh my goodness. I, I got to end this Bible study right now and I got to attend to this. So, um, but I think really what the, the greatest strength that I saw was the partnership of the staff, um, but also even the camaraderie of the teens, you know, sometimes it takes that kind of tragedy uh, for even, yeah, some of you might have situations in which your disciples are having a hard time uh, loving each other and, and being a family and I say this often to my students now, I'm like, I pray that we don't need a tragedy to get us to care about one another. Right. You know, like you just never know. Um, but man, like we are going through a collective traumatic pain right now as a family of churches and as actually an entire universe. <laughs> so I just think, man, what a special time that we actually get to communicate more directly how much we love each other and care about each other kind of the divisions that we have that we need to actually squash as, as soon as possible. So, right. um, yeah, so that's a, that, that was a time for me. 
you're you've worked a lot in campus ministry and when i've talked to people in reference to you it's all about your campus ministry work and i know you're respected among that that group that cadre of, of campus ministers what do you see as three things that are essential to having a healthy growing campus ministry in 2021 mm. no well one i appreciate the uh the high regards um i'm only a reflection of the uh the countless hours of investment people have made in me um and just allowing my creativity to flow um so i think it is a combination but i think the first and foremost is teamwork uh that if you try to build your campus ministry by yourself good luck (laughs) um I think if anything that we've learned during this pandemic is that we need each other. Uh, the amount of uh, collaborative uh, Zoom calls we've had to have, I'm like, I'm glad that we are doing this because our students need to see that the kingdom is much bigger than here, but it helps them build perspective for here. So I think teamwork is, is huge. Um, I think when we think about calling each other fellow uh, i've been referencing this a lot and first peter peter refers to the gentiles as fellow pilgrims of the dispersion which is huge because he's inviting them into his family you know he's saying he you're my blood so uh my problem is your problem your problem is my problem so um i think teamwork is huge uh and developing the right team even locally uh, and I think for us, you know, and this isn't this isn't rocket science and this also isn't new, but I think really identifying the gifts, the strengths and the weaknesses of your particular ministry. Uh, I think for us, when we came in, there was a culture here, like any other campus ministry that has already existed. You come in inheriting a culture and the culture here was uh, people who really were they valued school. You know, I, there have been very few times that I've had to disciple my students on academics. Um, but what happens as a result is there are other areas in which they don't have ambition. So I think for us, if we try to say, Hey, you guys got to hit the pavement, let's go reach out with a hundred people in two hours, you know, like every single one of you, every single one of you have to do that. Then I think we would have actually exasperated our students mm-hmm. rather than drawn out some of their gifts and some of the gifts that I actually saw was actually a lot of them had had the ability to be able to be honest and to be able to call the problems as they were. So I think the challenge that we had was how to redirect those, uh, those, uh, the uh, redirect cynical hearts to become critical. And I think uh, it's okay to be detail oriented. It's okay to have students that are able to identify some problems. Uh, I think sometimes uh, our knee-jerk reaction, I know for me personally, uh, I can be like, I don't even want to hear about your opinions about the problems if you don't have any solutions. Um, But really helping shepherd them to, hey, actually, that's really great that you saw that as an issue. What's a possible solution that you have? You know? Right. Uh, I need you. I I want to hear you out because I, if I was dead, 
right? And I, I remember I actually had this conversation. If I died tomorrow, how would you lead this campus ministry outside of those problems that you see? Because hmm. I don't want to perpetuate them. You don't want to perpetuate them. So let's let's figure this out together. And I think a lot of those talks, I mean, to be honest, bro, like the first year, I think we only baptized like two people, you know, and that's okay. I actually think we needed the two people to baptize because it was like that that was great for our group. Um, but I think about the growth of our group. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the truest identity. That's actually part of our common language now is that we have many identities. This is out of Colossians 3. We have many identi- identities. We're a student, we're a son, maybe a boyfriend, maybe a, I don't know, a, a club leader or something like that. But your truest identity is what? Being a disciple of Jesus. So how do all of those things revolve around that truest identity? So I think because of that, we've been able to have more, I think, very spiritual conversations, not just behavioral conversations, but, hey, do you realize that the fact that you don't want to reach out to anybody, that's actually a spiritual challenge that we need to talk about. Um, So, and then lastly, so first is teamwork, and then two, I guess, uh, identification. So identify the gifts and weaknesses of your group. Uh, but then lastly, have fun. (laughs) If campus ministry isn't fun, you're doing it wrong. You know, uh, I think that's the thing. Sometimes we, uh, there is not another time in your students' lives that they get to have this quasi freedom like campus ministry, you know, that you're out of your parents' house for the most part, um, but you still have structure, you know, and you still have the ability to be around hundreds and thousands of students every day uh, and a community that loves them. I'm like, I mean, how, how much better can you get than that? You know? And I think uh, sometimes we can sacrifice the fun, you know? And uh, I think that what that means though, is helping identify what, what your students find fun, but also I think for me, it was, it was not, it was commonsensical for me to go to dude. I mean, we're, we're, we're in the big 10, right? Like there's, there's a lot of great collegiate sports that happen as a result, but what happens if you have a ministry that doesn't really like sports like that, you know? And I think for me, I had these challenges of like connecting these, my students to, to care about that stuff. But I think what was cool was actually finding the fun in the middle too. And uh, hey, even if you don't like football, you'll enjoy a tailgate, you know? <laughs> um, you don't have to know what, I mean, sure. Like if you want to be able to reach a certain audience, then yeah, it's probably a good idea to know stats or know who won or know, you know, at least kind of who they're playing next. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even the fun behind that is great. But also even to learn your students language of fun that not, you don't have to necessarily, I, it's funny. I'm 29. Right. I, and I, I didn't think I would completely not be cool anymore, you know? And <laughs> I, I used to, I, I, I still think I'm cool. You know, I'm Rob, you're cool. Right. You know, you, you probably think you're cool. Um, but, but there is this reality where I have to actually recognize that, uh, but my coolness is not their coolness. So I have to, I have to try to wa- find a way to understand why what they think is fun is, is fun and not completely dismiss it as 
intentionally sinful or intentionally, you know, um, intentionally tomfoolery, you know? So I, I think that that's been great. Uh, I found my way in TikTok a little bit, uh, not as a creator. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. My wife's actually really good at that with, uh, she does this, uh, page jesus a2 and she makes a lot of great tiktoks but uh that's a shameless plug for you i love you baby um but (laughs) but really just learning how to listen to their language as well you know i think about paul i become all things to all people uh to win some right and i know for me that's the ticker that's really challenging is he becomes all things to all people to win some not all some and i think i'm like man if i can win some of you over then amen like you guys can advocate for me um but yeah fun never lose the fun out of campus ministry so that's that's great so teamwork identify your unique strengths and then have fun that's that's awesome now you know we're we're part of a family of churches that believes in discipling one-on-one relationships that's definitely in the dna um it's practiced more or less in various different churches. Can you tell me how you've set up discipling relationships in your campus ministry? Tell me what, what's your system? What's your practice? What, what do you do to help people to stay connected in this environment where people have been very isolated? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think, uh, well, the pandemic added a different flavor to these discipling relationships. Even for me personally, I think, uh, to recognize my own limitations, Um, I think that's why I'm grateful even for a lot of the campus ministers really helping us, uh, identify what can we do and what can't we do. Um, but I think with discipling relationships, I think there's a reason why it's good for campus ministers to focus not only on their leaders, but also those who require to be won over. And, uh, I think oftentimes, sometimes we can leave it to our leaders and our student leaders to win over those that are difficult. Um, whereas I actually think for me, and I think it depends on your situation. I mean, our, our campus ministry um, with everybody here, uh, pre-pandemic, we're at 28. Um, so it, it, I, I'm able to reach the, the downtrodden within the group. And if you have, if you, you've got a larger ministry, I think the way you think through that, it's almost like you still need to work with your student leaders to, to help kind of shepherd those that are uh, in more difficult situations. So, uh, but for us, the way we structured it, uh, especially uh, post pandemic, and I think what's actually been really amazing is, um, is one, I disciple my key leaders, uh, but also uh, I also help them and actually hop in uh, every other week with uh, their discipling relationships with the guys that they're discipling. Um, and I hop in and I just listen and uh, I provide feedback as a result. Um, and I think what's great about that is it exposes some of the challenges that I have of being a micromanager. So I think as a lot of leaders, we, we, we want to be able to put our hands in those situations, but it actually forces me to learn to be a better listener. Um, so, I think that that is uh, just an amazing, uh, it's been an amazing lesson for me, um, but also even for our students to, to really believe that their campus ministers listen. Um, so that, that's something we do. We do a, a, a 2D groups a month, uh, two discipling groups, 
And essentially, one is devoted to, uh, it's a goals-oriented discipling group. So I think oftentimes, discipling groups can be just kind of like a threshing floor, you know, like, let's just get it all out there. Um, And I think there's a place for that. But if you're doing discipling right, that those discipling groups don't have to be that, you know, that they need direction. And uh, I know for me that that's been really helpful. Uh, actually, the other day, um, yeah, we had a, again, the, the way it's structured is we are going somewhere as a group, as a brotherhood, this is where we're going. Um, and my wife does the same thing. Our rhythm's about the same. And actually we, as a campus ministry, we do, we only do midweek once a month with the rest of the church. And actually everything as a result of that uh, in the other subsequent weeks is we're doing something that is either focused on building our camaraderie as a campus ministry or uh, something that is evangelistic. So um, again, with the pandemic, that's what really works for us. And that's what's really helped. And, uh, and I think what's really amazing, it's, it's actually, you know, since the pandemic has started, we've, we've gotten to see nine people become Christians. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's just so cool because it's, it's one of those things where I, I do feel like, we were we weren't reaching out to as many people during this time, um, but it's forced us to think about the way we reach out differently. Um, whether it is shooting our shot, right? I mentioned that Steph Curry eyed um, on social media and just sending a direct message. The amount of people I direct messaged on Instagram uh, was embarrassing, you know. Um, <laughs> and but I also think about just the way that we kind of recapture relationships that we've had in the past. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that, that's the way I I would think through discipling, uh, that's the way we've done it. Um, and it's by no means seamless and by no means perfect, but I'm really proud of our group because I do think it's allowed us to learn, but it's also given them the opportunity to make it their own. Mm. Anything else that's working for you that you're excited about on campus? Yeah. Um, you know, I, we live in a unique area where, uh, you know, we're right, at, right outside D.C., and I think it provides a lot of opportunities for our campus students to grow even beyond campus ministry. And, uh, you know, even casting a vision for them as far as what happens beyond here. And uh, one thing that I, um, I'm really grateful for is the fact that we uh, do have a lot of young ministries around the area. Uh, even thinking about Potomac Valley is right down the street from us and Northern Virginia and Baltimore. And we have this unique opportunity to be able to do things together. So something that's really been effective for us is uh, doing what we call Freedom Fridays. And uh, they basically, it, it, you know, and I, I give a shout out to the New York Campus Ministries and Boston Campus Ministries, because it's almost like it, it we, we're technically all around the dc area that we call it the dmv which is funny because department of motor vehicles <laughs> they actually change it to mva over here so we don't get it twisted um which is really funny but um but even just doing things all together has been so amazing and actually what that's engineered is a partnership not a competition you know and uh that there is you know there is an ownership there's a pride to your own school right uh but even but even the fact that man you know, even let, let's just let's get rid of the jargon of like reporting numbers that are comparing each other. You know, it's man, a win for you is a win for me, you know, and I it, 
if that's a win for you, I want to learn how, how'd you get that win? Right. Um, we had a situation where, uh, our, our brothers and sisters in Northern Virginia reached out to, uh, an individual on their campus ministry. And, and actually, um, he transferred to one of our schools and, uh, through that, because of the pandemic, it was a lot easier for us to have joint Bible studies. And through that, you know, we met up in DC halfway and uh, we're able to finally do an in-person Bible study. A day later, we got to baptize uh, that individual. Uh, but it was just like, a, man, we're doing this together. Like this is, we're, we're trying to win the city together. Um, so I, I think that's been what's really been so amazing for us. Before the pandemic, we did something called Capital Collective. And uh, that was, oh, I mean, people listening on this call that's a, that has experienced it, uh, it, it was just born out of a desire from young people all, all across our ministries, whether it's in the young professionals uh, down in Northern Virginia and, and us, uh, around Potomac Valley, Baltimore. And we, we wanted to get together to do a worship night uh, in the city. And we actually uh, got a huge space in George Washington University. And uh, I remember the first time we had it was wild. Like we had, I, I th we didn't know how many people to expect, uh, but we had about, I think it was about 150 people show up and 150 young people were just there worshiping God together. Um, and what was so amazing is we, we had it set up where afterwards, uh, especially for our guests that came, if you want to get connected to a local discipleship community, you can reach out to us and fill out the sheet by where you live. Hmm. And that's the uniqueness about here, too, is a lot of people work in D.C., but they either live in you know Arlington, which is in Northern Virginia, or they'll live in Silver Spring, which is by us. But it's created this, and again, it's still complicated in some ways and in, in some of these details, but it creates this partnership where we're really trying to win this area, that it should not be confusing for somebody when they move to this area, that they will be connected to a Christ-centered, loving of discipleship community that will take care of you and that will call you higher. So um, those, are, those are a couple of things that's helped us, and I think that's actually created and casted a vision for our campus ministry, even to stay here beyond mm -hmm. their campus years. So th this area can, can be a bit of a transitory, you know, transient place. Um, but I think what's great is, you know, even my vision for this place is that this becomes a, a place that we send out, but also send in, mm -hmm. you know, so. That's great. So you're essentially working together with all the different churches and the different campus ministries and at one point, that used to be one church. It was the Washington, D.C. church that Russ Yule started back in probably late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And so those have kind of split and then become their own separate churches. But what you're doing is you're working together to share resources and point people toward a ministry that's that's close to their bedroom community. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, shout out to Russ Yule, because I, I do think, man, it, it was so funny, uh, a couple of years ago, the churches here celebrated the 30th anniversary, and uh, Russ was actually able to to, to speak for us, uh, just kind of sharing some of the stories of, of old. And I think, again, it, sometimes we, we think about, all right, you know, I know a lot of people in my generation communicate, we don't want to just uh, repeat the stories of old. We want to create new stories. But I actually think some sometimes we get to learn from those stories and actually take them to a new height, you know, and, and, and cast a new vision. Um, I think it, it's actually, 
uh, a Japanese philosopher, uh, uh, Daiseki Okeda talked about this idea of when we speak the truths of history, it actually gives us hope for the future. Mm. And uh, I love that, right? Because it's like, man, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a history nerd, buff, whatever. I love Malcolm Gladwell and he does that. And that's kind of what inspired the messy middle in some ways. But I do think, man, it speaks to, man, let's learn from those stories. Because what's happening is almost like a, it's almost like a, an accordion, you know, like we spread out and then just the, how the culture and the times go. A lot of young people are moving to this area. Mm. We're going to have to, we're going to have to come back in, that's you great. know, that's great. So, that's great. You mentioned the messy middle. That's your new podcast and you've got a voice that's pure gold. I mean, you, you've got that, <laughs> that baritone Thanks, that just projects and resonates. It's awesome. What inspired you and what do you hope to accomplish with this podcast? Well, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Rob Skinner that has no, <laughs> no, um, man, it's, uh, I'm sure maybe some sentiments that you can relate to with creating your podcast. I love what you shared. Just there, there's a, there's kind of a buzzing, you know, like in your heart that or a, a feeling uh there's a german term called uh, grenzbegriff which means like the the idea of like there's something there but you can't quite put your finger on it mm. and uh i think for me uh one of those things has been i i love to write but i think a lot of what i write is uh i keep it locked tight in a journal um because i'm also afraid of revealing some of those thoughts um <laughs> You know, it's kind of like the the diary of a 15 year old guy or girl that gets exposed and like, don't, don't look at it. Uh, but I think for me, I'll, I'll never forget. It was a conversation I had uh, with a an evangelist who, yeah, I, I just wanted to get his input on life and ministry. And one of the things that he brought up was, hey, do you do you realize there are actually not a lot of ministers that look like you? And I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't really think of that because, you know, I, and it's the kingdom of God, we shouldn't have to think about that stuff. And he was like, no, 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 but, but get me. It's not just look like you, but look like you. And in that moment, I, I realized what he was saying was that it wasn't just representation by appearance, but it was actually representation of my story and the fact of the matter was, I think for me, I was really wanting to go back to the Philippines um, and serve my people there. But the reality is I was born in America, you know, uh, I'm a Asian American, you know, and uh, the Philippines, is, they're great, man. Like I, they're, man, I'm inspired by them. I'm like, and I know, you know, this, uh, just working with uh, some of those disciples down there, but they're inspiring people. Yeah. Uh, but but more so, it wasn't necessarily that they didn't need me. But one of the things that he says, I actually think America needs you more. Um, and it was that it was that moment that I started to kind of build this uh, understanding of my own fears, my own hesitations of staying a minister for a long period of time. That uh, one of the things that I felt was I felt caught in between a black white America you know, and being an Asian American, 
uh, I think oftentimes my story and our narrative and our history isn't really taught very deeply in, uh, in our education system. Right. Um, and very briefly, you know, we talk about internment camps back in uh, World War II as a result of, uh, you know, uh, World War II and Japan's involvement. Uh, but I think even for us, there was, there's these stories that I've realized that I've been even recently unpacking the past, you know, 10 years. I'm like, I didn't know that. Why wasn't I taught that? <laughs> and uh, how much that actually affects me. You know how it affects how I'm received as a minister. It affects my own uh, my own trauma. You know, inherited trauma as a minister, uh, but also too. You know, I'm turning 30 this year, and I feel in between generations, and that's why I'm so grateful even for you, uh, really wanting to cater to uh, millennials and Gen Zers uh, when we think about the future of the kingdom of God to live in no regrets life. And I know for me, uh, I can feel like I'm. You know, Will Archer talks about this being in this cruciform, uh, cruciform visual or cruciform condition or posture where I feel the pull of one generation and I feel the pull of the other. Right. You know, I've been I've been trained by men that I will forever look up to, uh, but are part of a different generation. Right. And uh, I am shepherding and training and working alongside with another generation and both generations have uh unified thoughts on a lot of ways but both generations don't on uh so many ways and uh, i think about for me it's like so where do i this feels like a big mess <laughs> it's the messy middle right and uh what i love and even just thinking about that song jesus at the center of it all what i've realized is actually jesus doesn't necessarily take sides what he does is he puts himself in the dead center of everything <laughs> that he's willing to engage in the the messy conversations he's willing to allow the church to be messy um but as the messianic figure right that he's oh yeah the the play out words I, i'm milking it here uh, the <laughs> the messianic figure how we make sense of it all is actually allowing ourselves to get as honest and real and gut level vulnerable about the challenges but to allow God to be the resolver of it, you know? And I think human resolve is so dangerous. Mm. Um, even with everything happening, it's so crazy. You know, I, I've been dreaming of doing this for a few years and I wanted to wait for the time to be right. And, uh, I, I decided to launch this before all the AAPI issues came up and Asian hate crimes. And actually for the next four weeks, um, we're doing episodes about Asian American anecdotes. And um, I'm just, I'm excited because I, I actually think, man, where people have taken this conversation and gone the complete other direction. I'm my prayer is that, you know, that, the conversations that I, you know, I'm facilitating that we get to model what it looks like to be able to have reconciled conversations that, you know, we are in the ministry of reconciliation, you know, after all. So it's important. I mean, this is where true healing comes into play. So, yeah. So that's the reason why I did it. Um, you know, as you can probably feel it too, our podcast is a great platform because it actually gives us access to people that we probably wouldn't have had before. Right. Um, so I'm excited because there's some conversations with some individuals um, that I, I actually think, 
you know, it, it's just going to be really special to hear what they have to say. So yeah. that's great. Fantastic. I, I've been so impressed with the, you know, your marketing, the presentation, it's so professional. It's so interesting. It's like, oh my gosh, you just, you've got it going and it's very, very impressive. Not to mention that voice. It's a million dollar voice right there. <laughs> Ministry doesn't work out for you. Uh, you can go straight to NBC. You can take the, the broadcaster's position, the, the nightly anchor. Now Appreciate let, that, let me go back to AAPI. What is AAPI? Yeah, AAPI is uh, Asian American Pacific Islander. So it's a uh, it's kind of our our uh, academic term for in reference to um, your Asian American brothers and sisters and counterparts here in uh, in the United States. And uh, Pacific Islander is is a key part because you think about places like Guam, you think about even the Philippines. Are we are technically considered Pacific Islander? Um, so there's a lot of uh, even nuanced. Uh, like intricacies behind that terminology, but, you know, so that we're not singling or excluding anybody from uh, that term, AAPI is usually what I'll say instead of just Asians. Got it. It's interesting that you mentioned the Asian American hate crimes, crimes against Asian Americans. I got a text from Felipe Marias yesterday and he said, Hey, can you call this person? Uh, they're they're in a tough spot, and it's a person that we've been reaching out to in the singles ministry here in Tucson. And so I I called him, and he said, "Man, I'm he's Chinese Chinese. I, I don't know if he's Chinese American or he sounds like he's born in China, but working here at a local um, Raytheon Corporation." And he just I want to talk to him. I could just tell he was so distressed, and he said, "Yeah." Someone moved in upstairs in my apartment complex a few days ago. He came down this morning at 6 a.m. pounding on my door, yelling uh, slurs about me, screaming, I know you're in there, come on out here, you blanky blank, and did that multiple times all throughout the day so he couldn't couldn't leave his house. And he called the police, he, he let his... Uh, apartment complex now this I'm now this is just yesterday this is this mm. happened yesterday now this guy is the nicest guy I mean he's the sweetest guy and he just was close to tears sharing my my family just came to visit a few days ago I'm so glad that they had have left and didn't have to go through this um, but the guy just waited outside um, this this the neighbor upstairs and then the police and the the complex were like, well, we've got to fill out the paperwork and really didn't do anything. And that, I guess the complex is of, of course going to move forward to evict this person, but it's got to go through the process, but didn't help him in the short run, mm -hmm. you know, getting this threat out. And I just felt so bad. Of course I invited him to, to spend the night at our place and uh, he found somebody, somebody else to, to stay with last night, but it's just, it just shocked me. I, you know, you read about stuff yeah. in the news and then all of a sudden, boom, it's right there on your doorstep. And so, yeah, um, it's interesting that you bring that up uh, because it's, it's happening. It's, it's, it's yeah. a real thing. It's, it's really going on. So I'm praying for him and yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, I, I think one of the things that is challenging, especially for us in the church and we felt it this year, I think there are extremities of talking about race where we have to be careful not to internalize the reality of the world to the reality of the kingdom. Um, but we can't undermine the fact that it does affect us, that we live in this world, that we're actually 
tenants in this world. Um, and because of that, we're, we are, it won't become personal and become, until it becomes personal, you know? And I think we can't wait for that. We can't wait until, you know, it happens in our front doorstep or within our, within our family, because it's, it's going to happen, you know, when the more evangelistic we are, or the more people that we have access to, actually the higher the probability goes for us to experience some sort of hate, mm-hmm. um, whether it be because of the color of our skin or uh, because of the banner that we carry for Christ. So mm-hmm. um, I do think, yeah, I want I, 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 my prayer goes out to uh, that, that brother. I mean, that's painful, but I think to be honest, it, that stuff happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes we, and I know I have, I've stuffed those moments. And I think this is a time where I think more AAPI individuals are starting to talk about the stories that they've stuffed. Right. Uh, and it's cultural too, you know, Filipinos, we are known for being very hospitable and very fun and very jovial and karaoke all the time. And, you know, uh, <laughs> karaoke all the time. That's it. You know, this is us. Uh, we're talented at all the arts and, you know, as they say, but, um, at the same time with that comes a stuffing, mm-hmm. you know, that, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about my pain because that's, that's not worth my time. Right. Whereas I actually think we need to tap into that a little bit more, um, so that we can actually have some moments of clarity and reconciliation so that even, you know, our brothers can be advocates. Our sisters can be advocates Mm because you you guys aren't going to know how to advocate for us if we don't express, you know, what helps and what hurts, Mm -hmm. you know? So I've had that thought in the midst of all of the, the racial tension that's going on through the country is the focus has been on, um, the black experience, the African-American experience. And I've wondered to myself, to myself, I wonder what the Asians think or the, in Tucson, it's, you know, the 35 to 40% of uh, Mexican-Americans yeah. who are here and what they think, whether they feel forgotten or overlooked or, hey, what about our experience? You know, we, we're a relative minority here, we're, but we're a huge presence. Mm. And so I, something I think about from time to time. But thank you for what you're doing there. Any advice as we wrap this up, Noah, and it's been just a, really a pleasure to talk to you today. Any advice to those who want to make this life count, who want to live a no regrets life? It, it's clear that you are very determined. You are very, um, obviously very conscious about living your life to maximum impact. What advice would you give to a person who's thinking, yeah, I want to do something for God, whether it's in the ministry, out of the ministry, doesn't matter. They want their life to count. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier, that grins the griff, right? That, uh, that buzzing unknown that it's what we experience when we experience God, you know, you can't see him technically, you can't touch him or feel him, but you know, he's there. Mm. Um, all of us have those moments. And I think all of us have those feelings um, that might be something like, yeah, this is something I've been dreaming about for a while, but because of my circumstance, there's no way I can accomplish it. Um, that's just not the business of faith, right? Um, if we're men and women of faith, I think that's actually the allure of becoming a disciple of Jesus is that he pushes you to pursue your dreams, you know, and he also pushes you to make sense of your dreams. And, uh, 
I think about Daniel all the time where it's like <laughs> the only way he was able to interpret dreams was because of God, the, the best Grunsbegriff of them all, you know? And so I think about for me, um, my recommendation, both if I could speak to young people and if I could speak to those who are uh, seasoned and live in life, uh, large and in charge uh, and in older generation, the young people, I think allowing yourself as many opportunities to make mistakes. Um, and you got to move. You can't just let fear of mistakes cripple you. Because uh, actually what happens is that that creates a cycle of regret. Um, and I think you'll have actually a lot more courage when you get more input in your life and uh, when you put yourself in situations where you're bound to fail. So uh, I think about that all the time. I, you know, I've, I've failed many a time in studying the Bible with people and, you know, being in the ministry, like I, you know, it's, it, none of us will ever say that it's been all lilies and daisies. Uh, <laughs> there have probably been more failures. I've had more people reject me than accept me. You know, like I, I mentioned earlier, we had about nine baptisms this year uh, by the amount of people that we reached out to, we should have had more, you know, right, like right. that's, but that's the operationalization of, you know, going after, um, going after, uh, pursuing opportunity over fear, but for the older generation that your time has not yet concluded. Hmm. I think oftentimes I have conversations with those who maybe have been disappointed in the past. Maybe you had dreams of being a minister in the past. Uh, but you, uh, you know, maybe you had a conversation that hurt you. Maybe you had a conversation that uh, made you feel like you weren't enough or you weren't cut out for the ministry. You weren't cut out for uh, this job. But I actually think, uh, man, don't let those memories define the next stage of your life. Actually, I think sometimes it might not be that you weren't cut out, but maybe it wasn't the right time. And at just the right time, God operates in this way where, man, if there's a Grensby Griff going on, maybe you're dreaming and planning on going on a Flagstaff mission team. Uh, <laughs> maybe you're dreaming and planning on going on a mission team, even here in the DMV area. Um, you know, don't let, don't silence that because of the hurt that you've had in past. Mm -hmm. I actually think, man, let the hurt identify um, the opportunity as well. So anyways, that's my thoughts. That's really interesting. And, I've never heard that term Grensby Griff, but I know exactly what that means. And I felt that so many times where I felt that God was calling me to do something. I could feel it in my body. I could feel it, but I couldn't define it. I couldn't, I just could not put my finger to it. I could not, I just knew that there was something. Uh, and I felt that at times, like I felt like maybe we're going to move. Maybe we're going to do something different. Maybe God's calling us, but I felt a kind of a, anticipation like uh yeah before something like something's going on but i can't quite put my finger on what it is and i think that's really true you know when i thought about my own the own my putting this podcast together i felt that exact same thing someone asked me like what when did you when did you decide to get a podcast together and i literally can't remember it's right it's just so weird i go I just felt like I needed to do this and I, I guess I did it, but I don't, I can't remember when I, 
what was driving me. But I, I think there was something inside that's like, hey, just put this together. So um, yeah. I totally agree. You cannot allow anything, any fears to hold you back. You've got to go forward because there is something there, even though you can't define it, you can't outline it, but you just have to move in that direction. And God, God reveals someone once said, it's like going down a corridor. You've got to go down the corridor because doors will start to open once you go down the corridor. But if you don't go down first, you'll never see the door that you're meant to go through. Oh. So, Hey, Noah, thank you so much. What a pleasure to meet you. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything said yeah. about you is true and not even half has, uh, you know, totally fulfilled what, what I've experienced here, you know? Just, oh man, wait, wait till you get to know me, know me, Rob. No, I, uh, I, I'm so inspired by you. Thank you so much just for your effort. And honestly, your example throughout the years, um, and stories like yours that you allowed God to use you and create those opportunities that keeps us believing. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. And if you're enjoying this podcast, let me just ask you a favor. Please hit the subscribe button and let your friends, your church friends, your family know about it and how to find it. Please spread the word because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life and multiply disciples, leaders and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.